Hello and welcome to Adam and Eve on CJSR 88.5 in Edmonton and around the world on CJSR.com. My name is Rose Eva Forks Jenkins and I'll be your host for today's episode of Adam and Eve. Thanks for tuning in. Adam and Eve is Edmonton's only feminist news radio show. We are adamant on highlighting, discussing, and engaging with issues that affect women across Edmonton and around the world. On this week's episode, we're going to feature a wrap-up of all the episodes that we've had on 2019. Personally, I've been volunteering for Adam and Eve since 2013, and I can confidently say that this is one of the biggest years that we've ever experienced here at Adam and Eve. We're going to be talking about some of the biggest highlights for 2019 and playing snippets of some of the amazing content that we released this year. Thank you for spending another great year of community radio with us, and we're so excited to relive this journey with you. Let's start with the beginning of this year. In January 2019, Lisa Pruden and I started off with our two-part series on Finding Your Therapy. Lisa and I sat down with Lauren Groves, who at the time was a provisional psychologist. Lauren walked us through all the steps that someone who is seeking a therapist for the first time would go through. Let's take a listen. I also did my my degree, my Bachelor of Arts in Psychology, but I have yet to actually go and see a therapist or a psychologist. And there's like a weird disconnect for me because I have friends who do it. It's great for them. They say good things about it. And cognitively I know and believe in it as a thing to do but when it comes to doing it for myself there seems to be a weird cognitive disconnect where I'm like well but you know I'll give myself like a deadline if I still feel like I need to go in a couple of weeks then I'll pull the pin but I've I've yet to actually pull the pin yeah and I think your experience is is much like a lot of people where there's a like you said this disconnect where you think oh yeah maybe that would be helpful but counseling is not something that I do or it's not for me or the issues that I'm facing my in my life are not big enough or or significant enough for it to warrant therapy and I think that that's a lot of barriers for people so after after going through the process of searching out someone who would be a good fit uh, and getting into that, getting into the room for the first time, what could that look like? Yeah, I really want to be careful here to only speak for myself because I don't want people to expect that what I do with my clients is what everybody does with their clients. There's a few things that are universal. Um, The first is consent forms. Uh, Usually there's an intake form of some sort as well where you fill out what you're wanting to work on, what you've already tried, certain questions about different areas in your life, things like that. Um, consent form where we talk about what is the purpose of therapy? What are what are the fees that we're agreeing on? Uh, what is, what's the deal with confidentiality? What are the potential limits of confidentiality? Um, all that kind of stuff. So that's pretty universal that, that mo- you can expect from most people, um, as well as getting some background information from you as well. But it really depends on the type of therapy from that point onwards, what you can expect from people. Uh, For myself, I like to spend some time um, going over what therapy is going to look like, especially if people haven't been to therapy before. I like to talk about myself because, no, (laughs) because I like to talk about myself. No, I actually find that it, it takes the pressure off of people if for the first 
10 to 15 minutes. They don't actually have to say anything and they can just sit and listen. So when I'm talking about myself, I'm talking about my approach. I'm talking about how I view problems, how I work with clients, what they can expect from me so that they can make an informed choice about whether or not I'm going to be a good fit for them. That was me and Lisa talking to Lauren Groves, who, I am delighted to announce, is now a registered professional psychologist. You can find her at laurengrovescounseling.com or find her office at Ignite Counseling, located at 9915B, 82nd Avenue. Because we had such an amazing conversation with Lauren, we invited her into the studio a second time, and this time to talk about fat activism. Lauren was joined by Allison Tunis, Michelle Kennedy, and Karen Kirkpatrick about how fat people are perceived in society and we dive into the way that the medical system views fat potties and perpetuates a lot of harm against them. What are the changes that you'd like to see at the current medical model in terms of um, how weight is conceptualized? How long do you have? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think that's, I mean, that could be an entire show, show, an entire season of of a podcast of, like, what can the medical model do to undo like mm-hmm. generations of harm really and like the entire existence of the medical model is like founded on fat hate yep and i think now fat activists are starting to make like small measures with like individual healthcare providers around what like our own relationships with our doctors if we feel safe doing that and like our own kind of ways of quietly or loudly circumventing the medical model in our own way also there's so much research now if they would pay any attention to it there's more harm in being discriminated against and having to face bias every day that is more harmful to you than how much you weigh i went in with um, knee pain issues and i'm bordering on super fat and which is in the community sort of the size 26 to 28 it depends it's kind of fuzzy um but uh I'm not allowed like I'm not a confrontational person so I've always had a really hard time with doing those bits and pieces of of advocacy for myself and I went in and I didn't say anything the whole time and my doctor is a new doctor for me as well. Um, she didn't mention my weight through the whole thing, which was awesome. So at the end, I was like, you know what? I just want to say thank you for not bringing this up. And like, maybe we shouldn't have to thank people for not oppressing us. But at the same time, making her aware that that was important to me. And then we had a little conversation about it because she pulled out the, well, I'm not saying. And I was like, wait a second, wait a minute, wait, wait, wait. Like... I'm interested in learning about how to care for my knees by doing making them stronger. That's what I'm going to talk to you about. And that was basically all I was capable of doing. So uh, it, it was it was challenging, but she she did respond favorably to it. So again, I hope that maybe that will make some differences for me and others hopefully in the future. And sometimes I think when people have issues with confrontation, especially with people that we see as being in positions Mm -hmm. of power, um, I've heard of people uh, 
typing something up or writing something up ahead of time to bring into their doctor's office so that they can gather their thoughts and and know what they want to say and then be able to convey that to their doctor without having to have that in-person kind of confrontation. One other way that I suggest that people kind of sometimes go about things, and I'm just going to use your knee pain for an Mm -hmm. example because we've been talking about it, Um, but if, if people will say to you like, okay, well, the solution for your knee pain is for you to lose weight, asking them like, well, are there like people in smaller bodies that have knee pain? And like, yes. Okay. Well, what do you prescribe to them? What is, what is their solution for this? Because there's another, there are, there has to be other ways Mm -hmm. that we deal with this, that it, that it's not completely uh, dependent on weight. You just heard from Lauren Groves, Allison Tunis, Michelle Kennedy, and Karen Kirkpatrick talking about the effects of fat phobia. Thank you so much to these amazing guests for talking about their experiences. As someone who's had the privilege of not experiencing fat phobia, I am so grateful to have learned so much from these amazing guests. Continuing on our theme of incredible folks with a lot of knowledge to share, we had Justin Ducharme come talk to us about his film, Positions, as well as the Hustling Verse Poetry Anthology. His short film, Positions, tells the story of a queer, indigenous, male sex worker in Vancouver. And the Hustling Verse anthology continues on the theme of sex work, but this time on an international level. Sex workers from all over the world submitted their poetry to this incredible anthology, curated by Justin Ducharme and Amber Dawn. Here's more from Justin Ducharme in our episodes that were featured in May. So I met Amber Dawn through uh, work that I was doing with the Queer Film Festival here in Vancouver. And I think that Hustling Verse had always been a big dream of Amber Dawn. She had done a lot of community work with sex workers around around creative writing. So she had uh, like prime evidence that this book could, could happen. And we had talked about it a bit before just sort of like in a little bit of whispers and like maybe what if. And then after I had came out as a sex worker publicly and I was doing all this stuff with positions, we sort of picked up the conversation again and we were like, should we do this? And then, yeah, it sort of just came from there. And since then it's just been like the outpour of submissions that we got was, was beyond our, our expectation. And it just goes to show that like, that, that initial belief that started this, the catalyst for this, it was really a belief from Everdon that, you know, sex workers are poetic geniuses. We have to be. We, in, a, in, in the work that we do, uh, it was solidified, I guess, from there, you know, like that this was, that this was possible and that this was going to be sort of the first in its kind. I mean, sex work has been the, the theme of sex work in writing and even in film has been so co-opted. So giving the giving the voice back to the community was always going to be the biggest and most important thing for us. You just heard from the incredible Justin Ducharme. Earlier in the year, Adam and Eve had submitted a piece entitled "I'm Afraid of Men, Men Are Afraid of Me," featuring our interview with Vivek Shreya. In the month of June, we received some very exciting news we found out that Adam and Eve had won the Women's Hands and Voices Prize at the NCRA Community Radio Awards. After this triumph, we took what I think was a well-deserved summer break and then returned with our interview of the Shiverettes at Sled Island. 
I got the chance to talk to Haley Muir and Kaylee Cormack in their hometown of Calgary. They talked about their feminist punk band, The Shiverettes, and what being in this band means to them. Let's take a listen. Well, I don't know what it is about us, but I think that people know we don't care <laughs> if you have a problem with it. I think the like, I do get questions every once in a while where people are like, oh yeah, like that, like dead men can't catcall. Like, what does that mean? And I'm like, exactly what it says. Also, Google, go. I, I, this is not my job. Listen to the record. You'll figure it out. It's pretty easy. We're loud and we push. And especially like within the context of the band, we go hard with some stuff and like we feel pretty confident and draw some pretty hard lines and have pretty high standards about certain things and I think that pushes people away a little bit here and there and we've definitely had some um, issues. Yeah, It's a nice way to put it. <laughs> we have venues that won't work with us or we won't work with them. I'm not sure which came first. Um, oh, I know what came first. When they called us cunts, that's what came first. I know you can't probably air that, but uh, that that came first. Yeah, I had written Dead Man Can't Catcall on my amp, and we played a show in town, and uh, an unnamed owner of an unnamed venue in town, uh, I guess, called us uppity bitches and said, I saw what that immature cunt had written on her amp. <laughs> I was like, oh, all right, fuck you, you're canceled. Um, so we don't play there anymore. And this was years ago. Yeah. Um, but we we don't go there. We don't play there. And we try to tell as many people as we can about it in a way that keeps us safe and, you know, isn't putting our ass on the line too much. Um, but also, like, people need to know that this is how venues feel about us voicing our opinions. Afterwards, we had some good news and some bad news. Starting off with the bad news, we were very sad to say goodbye to volunteer extraordinaire Lisa Pruden. Lisa and I had been making radio together for over six years, and I'm so glad that I had the privilege to work and learn from such an incredible radio producer. Lisa is still out there making amazing radio, so make sure to catch the Well Endowed podcast to hear more from Lisa. So after Lisa left, I was very lonely on the Adam and Eve team as it was just myself. But the good news is, is the lovely folks at CJSR made me feel very recognized and special at the Volunteer Awards. I was awarded the Holding It Together Award for my work on Adam and Eve. In the words of Chad as he presented the award, It's not always obvious to listeners, but it takes a huge amount of work to coordinate a news team. Lining up stories, keeping everyone motivated, recruiting new blood, making sure everything goes out on time. It takes a lot to hold it all together, believe me. And this year's winner led by example. They're consistently creative, hardworking, and looking for new ways the station can improve. So thank you very much for those kind words and for that recognition. And I now have that beautiful golden disc in my living room on my, uh, what could be considered a mantelpiece if I were rich enough to afford one. Continuing on with some more great news, we were so delighted to welcome some wonderful folks to our team. We were so happy to welcome Michelle Dang, Andy Silva, Wen Chan, Luis Cifuentes, and Autumn Morinchuk. I'll let all of those folks introduce themselves. 
Hello, my name is Michelle Dang. My pronouns I use they, them, or she and her. Um, my favorite part about volunteering with Adam and Eve is just being able to learn more about some aspects of feminism that I might not be as familiar with. And yeah, meeting meeting everyone's great too. <laughs> my name is Andy Silva. My pronouns are he and him. And the thing that I really enjoy about being here is the possibility to really make a positive impact in the community. I was looking for ways to uh, be engaged in an organization that really had a positive impact, and so far I'm loving it. My name's Autumn Mornchuk. I'm in my last year of my Bachelor of Kinesiology here at the University of Alberta. And I predominantly uh, research female para-athletes and what it's like to break kind of typical female conventions in sport and looking at gender norms in sport. So I'm very passionate about um, sociology and women's issues and things like that. Hello, my name is Luis Fuentes. I identify as he and him. I do a lot of the background kind of editing for the interviews and whatever you guys come up with. I'm very excited to be helping and very interested for sure in like learning or uh, your takes on uh, feminism and feminism in the workforce and in society. Uh, I met Rosiva in, in an April event and I was always interested in radio. Uh, I, I know that having a voice for a lot of people in the communities is hard. So having a community radio, it's very important for those people people in the community to kind of put their voice out, their opinions out, and kind of have a, a say in what goes on in the community. So I'm very glad that I have a talent on editing, and we, I'm glad to help you guys. And last but not least, we have Wen Chan, who is in the studio here to tell us more about what brought her to Adam and Eve. Hello, everyone. Initially, I was drawn to do radio because I've always been into podcasts for so long that I started getting some ideas of wanting to start something of my own. So I stumbled upon ways I could get involved with CJSR. And you know, now I'm here, I guess. I've been into DIY culture as well. So I was really drawn into that aspect of community radio. This is also a part of how I'm trying to become a better feminist, recognizing that part of my privilege being able to participate in this radio production in the first place is making space and platforms to share and transmit stories that need to be heard. Radio has been a fun and challenging experience so far and has definitely stretched me. It also helps that everyone on this team are really lovely and determined people, and every person here inspires me in many ways. Aw, thank you so much, Wen. That was so lovely. We're so happy that you can be part of the Adamant Eve team. You did an amazing job of rising to the challenge of one of our most important days of the year for Adamant Eve and for CJSR, the Fun Drive. Yeah, Fun Drive was a really fun but scary experience for us new folks because a lot of us had never done live radio before. But it was a great time and we managed to raise over $700. Yay, reaching our show total. That was so wonderful. And yes, I uh, still feel super intimidated by live radio even after all these years, which is why I like to stick to pre-recorded discussions. So speaking of pre-recorded discussions, we also recorded a really fun one for our October show. That's right. It was lots of fun to chat about the movie Hustlers. It felt like a fun conversation between friends when I sat down with Autumn Moore and Chuck, 
Laura Cruz and Fia Frisky to talk about the representation of sex work on screen. It was such a good conversation that we were able to take the second half of our discussion to make an episode about the legalities of sex work and how all labor is exploitation under capitalism. Definitely. I know I had a great time using the movie as an entryway point to talk about larger issues, like how we can support sex workers in our own communities. So let's take a listen to a clip of Laura and Fia talking about the way that sex work was depicted in the film. Yeah, I was uh, just to jump off of uh, your point about um, the like the lack of daddy issues or trauma that leads uh, a lot of these women to uh, work not being shown in this movie. Uh, I think that that's one of its strengths in terms of the ways that it uh, depicts sex work is um, like you were saying, Rosiva, um, the grandma is there. Grandma seems to know what's what's good <laughs> and, and, you know, she's given her stacks of cash and there's no real like judgment or um or any kind of, you know, negative repercussions. Uh, uh, nobody really gets, I mean, people do get assaulted in this movie, but none of the women do to kind of move the plot forward or be punished for their involvement in sex work. And it's really kind of shown as a job. It's not uh, moralized about, it's shown as a, a thing that you can be skilled at and that you can um, use to support your family. Um, it's, you know, undeniably got negative aspects, but what job doesn't? Something that um, I was thinking about, uh, though, when we're talking about uh, the, the, the depiction of sex work is, um, and it's not really discussed for too long, so, and I think that was probably a good thing from the way that it was going, but um, the specific moment when uh, Destiny returns to uh, the club and um, a lot of the girls are, you know, providing uh, sexual acts for money in exchange for money and... Um, that happens and it's almost depicted as like completely demoralizing for her. Um, so it's interesting that in a film that is about sex work, uh, there's like a hierarchy being created, right? Which is, uh, which isn't great. Um, also, you know, uh, depicting like the, uh, the other girls that are there now who are immigrants, uh, largely, uh, perf- you know, doing that type of work. Uh, that's kind of concerning, but, um, but it is also the main driver and also the main driver for why she decides to do to kind of take it to the next step as well, Um, you know, with with Ramona and that diner scene that I actually love. (laughs) Yeah, we actually talked about, um, like, the hierarchy of sex work. I found that, like, a really interesting point in the film that that is, like, oh, I'll be a stripper and that's okay, but I won't, like, give a blowjob for money Mm because that's, like, a level that I won't sink to, which I think is kind of a dangerous depiction because I think regardless of, of what type of sex work you engage in, that's still legitimate work, whether you're giving sexual favors for money or or just stripping or anything like that. So I think that that was something that I definitely didn't agree with in the film. I was like, ooh, why is that scene is like so terrible? You just heard from Rose Eva Forgs Jenkins, Laura Cruz, Fia Frisky, Autumn Morinchuk, and myself in our discussion around sex work. For our next episode, I wanted to explore more about the theme of queer Asian representation, so I set up a phone interview with the band Cutsleeve. Michelle and I interviewed them to talk about their music and experiences as East Asian women in the music industry. Here's a clip where Cutsleeve talks about how they got their name. So when we were brainstorming for band names, we were looking up East Asian folklore, and I had come across 
the story called Passion of the Cut Sleeve, which is also queer folklore story. And there's not a whole lot of uh, narratives in, you know, older, ancient, culturally specific literature that is queer, for Asians at least. And it's essentially about an emperor who was getting up from a nap or something with his male partner and uh, he didn't want to disturb him so he cut the sleeve off of his robe so he wouldn't wake up his partner and so passion of the cut sleeve is a euphemism in China for homosexuality I guess yeah that story really stuck with me yeah it shows how uh, queerness has been in our histories for so long another cool thing about being called cut sleeve too is also that like I can tell people who I'm not out to, like my parents, mm-hmm. that, hey, I have, I'm in a band called Cut Sleeve, and the name Cut Sleeve is, like, super gay, but they won't necessarily <laughs> know that, hence, like, the euphemism, which I kind of think is, mm-hmm. is, is kind of cool, too. Like, I mean, we are definitely a queer band, but we don't necessarily, you know, go out, like, telling people, like, we're a queer band, and that's why you have to listen to us. Like, listen to us for our music, and then it's really also cool that we're all queer. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. After that, I wanted to talk more about what it means to be an Asian woman in the world. I called up my friend Carol Jacob in Chicago to talk with Michelle and I about our own experiences growing up as Asian women. Here's a clip where we talk about creating space for representation to happen. I think I had a lot of resentment towards my parents for so long for kind of assimilating, assimilating and quotes into this white culture. I think in kindergarten, my dad told my mom to stop speaking Cantonese to us. And looking back at it right now, I, for so many years, I used to resent that of my parents. But I also recognize now that it was kind of an act of survival in their case. They had to not have these Absolutely. accents to be successful in their jobs and be taken seriously. So I guess now it's me trying to reclaim the parts of myself that I feel kind of lost from. Weird, because like first there's the resentment of why are you not white? Why are we not white? And then you get older and then it's like, why did you not teach me about my culture? Why are we not more, Mm -hmm. you know, it's weird. I feel bad for my parents. Sorry, (laughs) mom and dad. (laughs) And then the added layer of being like an immigrant child that wants to support your parents because they gave up so much of their own identity and culture to come here. It's endless guilt and... Representation? What were we doing? <laughs> Maybe a way we can tie this together is how do we, instead of looking for others to represent us, how can we find that representation within communities among us? Even like the word community, we could talk a, a lot about. Yeah, I think the first part of it is just having conversations like we are now. And, you know, when you talk to someone, don't just make it like small talk, you know, talk about some of the issues that you, know, you feel you're facing or you can connect to people with. And I think what you guys are doing now, just do what you want. Like if you want to do something, like this you know get it out there start something on your own give it a go if that's something you're passionate about go for it and there'll be people to support you because there are people who want to see people like us doing well because we work so hard and we deserve it and then i think with representation in spaces that are like predominantly white or something like that i think a lot of the time the the honest is on us as asians who you know put ourselves in there like advocate for ourselves and like obviously i think that's a very important thing to do but i also think that there's a huge responsibility responsibility for people who are already in
in those communities to be making space for us, making mm-hmm. space that like will make us feel comfortable. All these spaces like just advocate, yes, we are a safe space or whatever, but you go in there and then you see everyone who's still, you know, mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't Definitely. know what I'm trying to say. I feel no, what I, you're trying to say. Yeah. It's a yeah, feeling. It's like everyone, like all immigrants just know the feeling. Like right. you can't really explain well, we it in words, right? Just like read my <laughs> mind, feel my you soul. More of a feeling than a word. Exactly, right? You go in somewhere, you see everyone's white, mm-hmm. and then your stomach just like drops. I- and you're like, I think just that step into taking up space is really difficult for me. Again, why we need more representation. If we see other people doing this, it at least makes me feel more brave to be doing this myself, right? Awesome. I really loved learning more about your experiences through those episodes when. Thank you so much for ending 2019 with such powerful and thoughtful content. And that brings us to the end of the year and the end of this week's episode of Adamant Eve, Edmonton's only feminist news radio program. We produced this week's show in the studios of CJSR 88.5 in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, on Treaty 6 territory. We are grateful to be in Miskwichiwiskai again, the traditional territory of the diverse indigenous peoples of this land, including the Cree Nehio, Blackfoot Nitsitapi, Metis, Nakota, Haudenosaunee, Dene, Ojibwe, Soto, Anishinaabe, Inuit, and many others whose histories, languages, and cultures continue to influence our vibrant community. We recognize that colonialism is ongoing and violent. We ask you to reflect on your own relationship with this land further and ask what accountability would look like here in this practice for yourself. Thank you very much today to everyone who has contributed to make this year of Feminist Radio such a great one. Adam and Eve is a spoken word project of CJSR-FM 88.5 in Edmonton, Alberta, and our journalism is funded by you, the listeners. For more information on our program and to send us any feedback, please contact us on our Facebook page under Adam and Eve or tweet at us at Adam and Eve, all one word. We're always looking for more volunteers to help out, so if you're interested in learning any aspect of radio production, just get in touch. Thank you so much for tuning in. We've been your hosts, Wen Chan and Rose Eva Forbes Jenkins. Have a great adamant evening.